This program is sponsored by Blazing Grace Ministries. This radio program is PG-13. Parents strongly caution some material may be inappropriate for children under the age of 13. Set me Jesus' mission was to comfort those who mourn, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to captives, and open prison doors for those who are bound. For those who want more than status quo Christianity has to offer, Blazing Grace Radio begins now. And here is your host, Mike Janung. Hey, Mike Janung here, and welcome back to Blazing Grace Radio. Thank you for joining us on this journey of life. And let's jump right into it today. So today I have with me Dr. Anna Lemke, MD. She is the professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and is the chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. She is a clinical scholar, the author of more than 100 peer-reviewed publications. She has testified before the U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate she served as an expert witness in federal and state opioid litigation as an international recognized leader in addiction medicine treatment and education. Her latest book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, was an instant New York Times and Los Angeles Times bestseller that has been translated into 30 languages. And so, Anna, welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. So one thing that caught me, my eye, was the subtitle in your book, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. Describe for us the age of indulgence and how it's affecting us. Yeah, so we're living in a really unique time in human history where not only do we have most of our basic survival needs met, but we have access to more highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors than at any point in human history. Um, almost every human activity has become drugified in some way, made more potent, more accessible, more novel, more bountiful, such that we've all become vulnerable to the problem of addiction. It's no longer this thing that uh, somebody we've remotely heard of in somebody else's family is struggling with. It's really kind of an everyday occurrence for all of us. And the advent of the Internet and digital media and digital drugs has only exacerbated this problem. Mm. So we're really dealing with a problem of plenty, the problem of overwhelming overabundance and our modern challenge has really um, become how do we find balance when we are wired over millions of years of evolution to binge on every good thing we find uh, because uh, in the world that we evolved in, uh, it was a world of scarcity and ever-present danger, but that's not the world that we find ourselves in now. Mm. In your book, you write that the more dopamine any experience releases, any experience or substance releases, the more addictive those experiences or substances can become. What is dopamine? 
Dopamine is a chemical that we make in our brain. It is a neurotransmitter, and neurotransmitters are the molecules that bridge the gap between neurons. Neurons are the long spindly cells that conduct the electrical signals that make up neural circuits, but they don't touch end-to-end. There's a little gap between them called the synapse, and neurotransmitters are the molecules that bridge that gap, allowing for fine-tuned control of those electrical circuits. Dopamine has many different functions in the brain, but one of the most important functions is that dopamine is essential for the experience of pleasure, reward, and motivation. It may be even more important for motivation than it is for pleasure itself, but certainly the salience or attractiveness of a substance or behavior uh, when we first encounter it is largely communicated to us in our brains by the release of dopamine in the reward pathway, which is a dedicated circuit in the brain. The more dopamine that's released and the faster that it's released, the more likely that substance is to be something that we will want to approach, explore, and do again. You said that every human activity has been drugified. So does dopamine play into that? Yes. Um, part of what um, makes the world such a treacherous place is that there are now so many things that release a lot of dopamine all at once. Even behaviors that we traditionally have thought of as uh, good for us, like human connection, uh, which is fundamental to survival, which does release dopamine mediated in part by oxytocin, our love hormone. Uh, even human connection has become drugified in the modern age through, for example, social media, which has distilled the parts of human connection down to the most reinforcing aspects, allowing us to have fine-tuned control of the visual images, stories, uh, connections that we have, uh, which is to say that that releases a lot of dopamine, whether it's a dating app or just watching uh, humans dancing on TikTok or uh, talking on Discord while playing a video game. All of it releases dopamine. It's highly reinforcing and therefore also has the potential for addiction. Mm. I like that you talked about human connection. And so I've seen surveys that say that the average American will spend 900 hours a year on social media, another 900 hours a year watching TV, and another 700 hours a year in video games. So how is all this electronic stimulation affecting us socially with human connections? Well, the impact of excessive screen time uh, is becoming more and more apparent that there is this negative or dark side. Um, one aspect of it is that we are getting the illusion of human connection uh, through these different digital media without actually experiencing meaningful human connection. So that's not to say that people can't have meaningful human connections online. They can, of course and especially people who are limited in their ability to have in-person contact by virtue of disability or geography or what have you, the Internet has become an amazing vehicle uh, to make human connection. But on the other hand, it can give the illusion of connections when connections really aren't there, and this is the great danger. You add on top of that the fact that 
excessive screen time time can also increase anxiety, depression, insomnia, inattention. Um, and now you've got something that's really gone from being a useful um, tool that's beneficial for humanity to something that really has the potential to cause significant harm. Hmm. I'm going to read to you some stats on 2023 use of smartphones and then get your input on it. It says 57% of Americans say they are addicted to their phones. In 2023, people check their phones 144 times a day. Screen time is up 30% in 2023 compared to 2022 by 30%. Americans spend four hours and 25 minutes a day on their phones compared to two hours and 54 minutes in 2022. Many say they have their phones with them at all times. 60% sleep with their phones. 89% check them within the first 10 minutes of waking up and use them on the toilet, which is 75%. When a notification comes in, three-fourths, 75% across generations look at it within five minutes. So when you hear all this, what goes across your mind? Well, the first thing that I think it's worth validating is that our incredible attachment to our phones really speaks to how social we are. We love to be connected with other people and we don't want that connection to end. And I think the sort of growing amount of time that people are spending on their phones, the fact that they take their phones to bed, they take their phones into the bathroom, on the toilet, you know, the upside or the positive spin of that is, wow, gee whiz, we really like to be connected to other people and we don't want to experience uh, the pain of disconnection. The problem is that the medium itself is reinforcing in a way that's not very good for us. So the medium of the, the screen, the buttons, the kinds of, uh, you know, uh, sort of pressing the buttons, uh, swipe right, swipe left, plus the impact on our brains of these highly stimulating visual images in very short duration, moving video, sounds, music, uh, color, narrative, uh, the potential to get things, buy things, win things, all of that turns what is on the one hand a, a powerful vehicle for connection into something that in and of itself is so reinforcing that we're using it much beyond its utility as uh, a way to connect. So what begins as a good thing turns into us sitting on the toilet for hours at a time, scrolling, you know, through the bottomless bowls of uh, TikTok videos. And that that is not good. Um, and I really, it's really become clear, I think, even to the average layperson uh, who owns a phone or lives with somebody who owns a phone, which is most of us now, that we are all getting addicted to our phones. And I, I don't like to use the term addiction lightly. I do think of it as an indicator of psychopathology, addiction broadly defined as the continued compulsive use of a substance or a behavior despite harm to self and or others. Sometimes that's harm that we can see, and sometimes it's harm that others have to point out to us because we're not actually able to see true cause and effect when we're chasing dopamine. Mm. 
But I do think that, you know, this is really something that we need to have a conversation about in our families, with our children, with our loved ones, in schools, at the level of uh, governance, uh, at the level of any kind of community support. You know, how can we develop a healthier relationship with the technology? It's not going away, um, you know, nor am I suggesting that it should go away. I'm not promoting uh, some kind of, you know, return to a, a Luddite existence, but um, it's very clear that that we've reached some kind of crisis point where we're now using uh, these machines in a way that's contrary to our health, contrary to human thriving. And so we have to figure out how to get back into balance so that they are powerful tools and not potent drugs when we use them. Mm. So how do we get back into balance and what does that look like? I strongly recommend a period of abstinence away from our devices um, for a number of different reasons. And, and if it's not the phone in its entirety, perhaps it's a frequently used app or website. Um, perhaps, you know, it's just a, a certain way of being on the phone or a certain activity on the phone. But I really do see clinically, and it's also consistent with the neur neuroscience, that if we, if we really want to reset our reward pathways and recapture our ability to see the true impact of our digital consumption on our lives, we have to take a break from it. That while we're consuming, we, we really only have the vaguest sense of uh, the, the impact of that behavior on our lives. But even more importantly, we're caught in the vortex of constant stimulation, withdrawal, craving, and then drug-seeking our next hit. And in order to get out of that vortex of compulsive overconsumption, we need to take a break. We need to get out of the pull, uh, the gravitational pull of that black hole, which these phones can become and uh, let our brains reset and rest and get perspective. And then consider, um, once we're out of that compulsive vortex, how it is that we really want to integrate the use of these devices in our lives. And of course, many people will say, well, I don't have a choice. I have to be on for work or I have to be on for my kids. But I don't really think that's entirely true, that, that we can restructure our lives and the way we're communicating and, and how we're prioritizing work and relationships in new ways so that we're, we're not, you know, constantly finding ourselves uh, on our phones even when we don't want to be. Mm. So for me, taking a break means really keeping off it as much as I can over the weekend. What... How would you describe taking a break? Yeah, I think that's sort of kind of a digital Sabbath on the weekends, one day a weekend or both days on the weekend. Uh, it's a great way to go, especially if in, um, at, at the same time that we're trying to not use our phones, we're also planning other things that we can do instead, especially in-person things with other people or creative activities that we enjoy where we don't have the phone even on our bodies. So I think for a long time, I was hopeful that just by using the phone differently, we could change our behaviors. But what I'm finding more and more is that although that can be helpful, it's not sufficient, that we really actually need to physically separate our bodies from our phones for a period of time, leave the house without the phone and do something without it there. And 
even just notice how much we're thinking about it, right, and how much we're perseverating on what we might be missing, which really is withdrawal. You know, that that's, that's withdrawal. That's how our brains try to pull us back in. But if we can just go for long enough without the phone even near us, maybe it's in another room or, again, maybe we've left home without it, right, um, then our brains gradually begin to settle down. We stop compulsively thinking about the phone. Our sensory experience shifts outward and widens, and we're able to take in a lot more information, be a lot more present, have thoughts that we haven't had for a while because we're constantly interrupting ourselves with our phones. So these are the types of things. Um, with patients who come in who are you know, severely addicted to online pornography, online shopping, online video games, online news, uh, whatever it is, uh, such that they become depressed, anxious, suicidal, etc. I will usually recommend a, a total fast from screens for a period of long of time long enough to reset reward pathways before reintegrating screens back in their lives. And those are extreme cases. And in my clinical experience, it takes on average about two to four weeks to kind of really reset the brain and be able to start from a place of strength in determining, okay, now I've got my brain back. Um, I'm not constantly caught in this perseverative loop where I overvalue this online activity beyond what is rational or makes any sense for my life. And then pa patients are able to be very thoughtful then about, number one, how to reintegrate the devices back into their life, but even more importantly, what guardrails they're going to set up so that um, they can, you know, optimize their chances of, of being successful in maintaining a healthier relationship. So some examples would be my patient with a severe video game addiction actually abstained from all screens, including his phone, for three months. He was able to do that in part because he had become so depressed that he had dropped out of school, was back living with his parents. But as he got better, which he did, by the way, just by simply getting off screens without any other psychiatric intervention, except for a little bit of coaching, um, he decided uh, when he was ready to go back to school to get two laptops, one that would be exclusively for school and one that would be for entertainment. And that way he could keep, you know, his uh, schoolwork and leisure time separate on two separate devices. So that was a clever idea that he came up with. Mm. Well, you mentioned uh, he was depressed. So to what extent does binging on screens cause depression? It's becoming very clear that it does cause depression and it does cause anxiety and then it probably leads to a the same kind of chronic dopamine deficit state that we see with people who uh, excessively use drugs and alcohol because what we're seeing in clinical care is that when people present for depression and are spending exorbitant amount of time on their screen, when they eliminate screens, their depression anxiety very often gets better even without us doing any other intervention. So this is a, a powerful potential depressant uh, and stopping screen use People typically will feel initially worse before they feel better. That's the same thing whenever we stop any addictive substance or behavior as we go through withdrawal. The universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and craving. 
But once we get through those first 10 to 14 days, withdrawal starts to subside, our reward pathway starts to reset itself, dopamine transmission starts to go up again, and people feel better. Not just better than they did when they were in acute withdrawal, but actually in many cases better than they have for a very long time. So what would you say to the man who's been binging on porn since he was eight years old and now he's in his 40s and he's in way deep? Yeah, so my first response would just be an enormous amount of empathy. Like, how how difficult is that? You know, what a difficult uh, behavior uh, to sort of get caught up in. And, and people experience so much shame and guilt about it. And so I just feel an enormous amount of empathy for people struggling with pornography, sex addiction, compulsive masturbation, and the whole gambit. But I would also communicate a lot of hope. Uh, a lot of times patients who are addicted feel like they only have two alternatives. Um, I'm, I'll use my drug or, you know, including pornography and I'll be miserable or I'll stop using and I'll be miserable, even more miserable. That's the fear. But what I say to them is there is a third way where you can break this uh, compulsive loop and start to feel really good. Um, but it's not easy. It takes a lot of work and it takes patience and endurance. Um, but there is a, there is a path through this. Uh, there is a way to thread this needle. And so never give her, give up hope. Keep trying, um, because there's a way to be in the world and be joyous, uh, without this behavior. The other thing I always kind of talk about when I talk about sex addiction or pornography addiction is that ironically, it's not even really about sex. Uh, it's really about, um, you know, the longing for intimacy with other people. It's about self-soothing. Um, it's, it's really nothing to do in a, in a funny kind of way with, uh, with sex per se. No, I agree a hundred percent. There's always something driving it. That's just the band-aid or the medication. Yeah, and whatever you know, but I, I, I guess I, I think it's important to look at sort of the the, the emptiness behind the addictive behaviors, while also keeping in mind that you know you can have the perfect life and also get addicted, because the stimuli themselves are highly reinforcing, and they change our brain. Uh, when we expose ourselves to it. So really, you know, anybody can get addicted with enough exposure. And then sometimes, and then once we're addicted, the addiction itself drives the addiction. Like we don't have to be looking for a reason why I'm addicted. It's like, well, you're addicted because you're addicted, right? Once we get in that loop, um, you know, you know, uh, the, the, the reason that we got into it becomes less important than the fact that we simply are addicted and need an intervention for that. And I, I emphasize that because um, a lot of patients will come and say, well, if I can just figure out why I'm addicted, I'll stop. Or if you could just treat my depression, I'll stop. And the, tr the truth is that even if I could treat their depression while they kept using their drug of choice, or even if they could figure out why they're addicted, they'll probably still do that behavior uh, because it's a very uh, self, uh, sort of self-automized loop. So the, the first intervention really is changing the behavior. And then the figuring out why and the feeling good comes after that. And then AI porn um, is even more toxic where people can communicate or have their the pornography basically talk back to them, right? 
Right. I mean, this is sort of an extension of one of the fundamental problems of our spending so much time online is that these digital devices essentially function like masturbation machines where we don't need other people because uh, now these digital devices sort of meet all of our needs. Um, and so we're isolating and turning away from each other. And once you get AI simulating human agency, um, it's super scary because you can just imagine the ways in which our already isolated existence will become more and more isolated if, if we let this happen. Mm. I don't think we will. I'm very optimistic that humans need each other and want each other enough that we're going to perceive the ways that uh, you know, using these devices to get a dopamine hit is really not good for us, and we're gonna we're gonna eliminate uh, using it in that way. Well, thirty seconds. Anything you want to say? Just uh, thank you for having me on your show. I hope I hope that this could be helpful to uh, folks out there, and uh, yeah, just you know, I want people to stay hopeful. I've seen people get into recovery from severe addictions after decades of suffering, so there's always hope. All right. Thank you, Anne. It was wonderful. Oh, you're welcome. Take good care. Thank you, my friends, and we'll see you next time. Do you want to be free? Blazing Grace is a nonprofit international ministry for the sexually broken and the spouse. Please visit us at blazinggrace.org for information on Mike Janung's books, groups, counseling, or to have Mike speak at your organization. You can email us at email at blazinggrace.org or call our office in Chandler, Arizona at 719-888-5144. Again, visit us at blazinggrace.org. Email us at email at blazinggrace.org or call the office at 719-888-5144. This program was sponsored by Blazing Grace Ministries.